Please go ahead. Okay, um, someone can bring up the lights in the back. I want to ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans and uh, chapter 8. Spend a little time in this uh, passage that will end our discussion in Romans 8. Last few weeks we've been talking about uh, the topic, talking back to fear. Uh, Addressing that topic with the assumption that most of us as Christians go through times in our life where we experience fear, reluctance to believe by faith what Christ has so freely and graciously done for us. We often perhaps fail to appropriate the good work of the cross of Christ. And in, in verses 35 through 39, Paul is giving five basic questions that in a sense turn around and become five basic assertions. The first assertion is God will provide for you. Second assertion, God will protect you. Third assertion, God will forgive you. Fourth assertion, God will stand between the Father and you and mediate on your behalf, though you are a sinner. He will plead his blood as the means of your forgiveness. And the last assertion that I want us to look at this morning deals with the love of God. The text says in verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, one writer has makes this observation. As you look at these five questions that end with a statement about the unconquerable love of God, one writer said this. He said, we are ascending a grand staircase. And when you come to the last question that is asked here, he says, you come to the top step of the staircase. And the The last step on that grand staircase brings you to the the height of the love of God that is incomprehensible and immeasurable. I said to the Sunday school class this morning, I'm going to attempt the impossible this morning. I'm going to talk about the love of God. But I realized as I was studying this week that I, I don't even have the capacity, the ability to address a topic like this. So if you will forgive me for my shortcoming and yet entertain me for a little while, to, to listen to truth about the love of God. Perhaps God, by His grace and by His Spirit, will illuminate our hearts so that we understand the love of God in such a way that we can speak back to this question. Who can separate you from God's love? That's the question that Paul puts out there. And as we work through the text, the Apostle Paul is going to seek to answer that question. Because the bottom line is this. I live in a world where love is kind of weird. Love is a broken term. It's a category that is often misunderstood and mistaken for many other things. And so as we look at this text, what can separate us from the love of Christ? Okay, I want us to jettison all the songs about love that we know, all the secular perceptions and understandings and descriptions of love, all the representations of love that are out there in the world that we live in. Put them aside and allow the truth of God's word to speak the love of Christ. In answer to this question, who can separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus, our Lord? That's the question I want to deal with this morning because here's the fear that we're talking back to. When you experience seasons of difficulty in your life, your greatest temptation is going to be to doubt the goodness of God. When God allows trouble to smack you in the head, to ram into your life, 
the first thing that's going to happen, the first assault of the evil one, the first dart of doubt will be this. Does God really love you? Because he kind of knows how much you've messed up lately. Does he really love you? Is his love for you persistent love? Is it unconquerable? Because most of the love that we've experienced in our lives has been a flawed love, a broken love. Many people have experienced in their parental relationships a flawed, conditional sort of love that is present when your behavior is good, but is gone when your behavior is bad. And we assume that's the way God will be. Many people in our culture, up to 50% of the population, has experienced the breakdown of marital love. And many who are still married have experienced the breakdown of that love commitment till death parts us, no matter what. And so we live in a world where the category of love is a broken category. It's a, the definition of love is broken. It's usually uh, laden with emotion and romance, which comes and goes. And it leaves us thinking, is God really that good? Is his love a devoted, committed, unconquerable, durable love? Or is it just like the rest of the loves that I experience in my life on planet Earth? So let's look at this text, which has as its theme the love of Christ for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Let me just address this at the onset. There's two ways that you can take this. This could mean our love for Christ. That is, he is the object of our love. Or it is the love that Christ is the subject of and has for us as its objects. Okay, that's two ways you can translate or interpret this passage. I think the meaning is abundantly clear that the purpose or thrust of this text, as Paul answers the question, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Well, let's be very honest. If the love of Christ in context is my love for Christ, that is frequently breaking. It is not a substantial, durable love. It is certainly not incomprehensible. I believe this text is clearly talking about the love that Christ has for you that is expressed most clearly and profoundly on the cross. That love is what Paul's taking up as his topic of discussion in verse 35, going down through verse 39. Christ's love for us, not ours for him. Love that he actively exercises and in the past has exercised on behalf of every believer. So three questions then that I would like to ask. First one is this. Can anything separate us from the love of God? Okay, that's the question that Paul puts out there. Question is in the future tense. Is there any possibility that in the future I will be severed from the love that Christ has for me today? Is there anything that I can do that will sever me from the love of Christ? Is there anything anyone can do to me that will negate the love that Christ has for me? That's the question that Paul is putting out here. Is there any circumstance, any person, any events in the future that will negate or kill the love that Christ has for me? That's the large question that he floats here. In the rest of verse 35, I want you to notice what he says. He says, shall trouble, hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword separate us from the love of God? Now, what has Paul done? 
Paul has personified seven categories of experiences. And his question is, can any of these things separate us from the affection that God has for and towards those in the context here are who? Okay, who, who, is, who is Paul addressing in this context? Just think back through what we've been talking about. Okay, Romans 8, 28. Those that he called, right, are the ones that he foreknew and predestined. Those that he called, he justified and glorified. That's who he's talking to. Those that know a personal relationship with God by grace through faith. For them, can the love of God ever fail, ever separate us from his affection? That's the question that is addressed in this text. For a true born-again believer, is there anything that can separate us? These seven words, in a sense, personify or give life to categories, okay? Uh, can trouble ever come after you and attack you and take you down so that God will no longer love you? Can persecution ever come after you in a way that will separate you from the love of God? Can, last thought, death separate you from the love of God? I mean, Paul's going for the jugular on that one, isn't he? He covers all these categories, and then this last one is significant. Can pressures and distresses take God's love away? Can the lack of adequate food and shelter, famine and nakedness, take the love of God away? The first thought that comes to mind is Matthew chapter 6 and verse 25. God's promise to his children is, I will give you food, shelter, and clothing. And that food, shelter, and clothing, in the context of famine and nakedness, will be the evidence daily of my love. It's God's promise. The last one that he deals with is death itself. And the way that he says it is this. He says, or danger or sword. Okay? What's the purpose of a sword? If you're trying to say, okay, what does he mean when he says, can a sword separate us from God's love? What is Paul talking about? Okay, is he talking about something that people have hanging on the wall in their, uh, in their bedroom, in their great room, that, that, that you know, kind of artistic symbol? That's how we see swords in our culture. Romans 13, 7 gives us the cultural setting. Here's what Paul says. The king does not bear the sword in vain. Well, why does the king bear a sword? Why do the policemen in Washington Township pack heat? Why do they do that? Yeah. Why, why are guns carried by police officers? Not so they can wave them around. But the purpose of that kind of weapon, weapon is lethal in its intent. Paul says, can the sword separate us from God's love? What is he saying? Can death itself, can your ultimate fear separate you from the love of God? There are many who come to the door of death and are ravaged with an intense fear, have watched it happen. It is horrifying. Who have no confidence in Christ. That death, in fact, will not separate them from the love of God and the possibility of it. So in the list, Paul goes from very basic needs, food, shelter, clothing, to the concept of death. They, this list, is a list of things that we would not choose, and they are the things that we all tend to fear because they cover categories like this. The loss of health, the loss of job, the loss of financial security, the fear of being disliked for our beliefs, or death itself. Those are categories that we struggle with. Can any of those things ever negate the love that Christ has placed upon us? Now, 
Paul's answer is going to be very clear in a few moments, but here's the question I want to ask you. What is the effect of these experiences in your life? When you experience financial difficulty, when you experience relational struggles, when you, like my friend Jerry did a week and a half ago, get a doctor who sits you down and says you have a serious blockage in your intestine and it is likely that you have cancer. When he, two days before that experience with that doctor, sat in my office and said, do you know that it is one year ago today that my dad died? Do you doubt the love of God in that circumstance? One year and two days after your dad dies, you're diagnosed likely with cancer, and the first thought in your mind has to be, is my life done? And when that thought comes to mind, the other question that Satan wants you to ask is, how could God love you? If God is letting this happen in your life, how could he possibly have a, an unconquerable love for you if he's letting these circumstances come into your life? The effect of the things in this list on the heart of many Christians is that it can cause us to doubt the goodness of God. Here's the question I want to ask. Why is it that those things cause us to doubt God's goodness and love? Okay, why is it? Why is it that when times get rough, the first thing that we're tempted to do is say, is God really good? Isn't that exactly what Job's friends did to him? Job, in the midst of your trouble, how could you say that God is good? Or is there sin in your life? Do you see? Troubles tend to cause us to question the validity and stability of God's love in our lives. It's a natural response because I believe this. I believe we misunderstand the purpose for the circumstances that come into our lives. You see, we think the purpose of life is for us to have a good life. It's what you're pursuing, I presume. It's the reason kids go to college. It's the reason parents get on their kids when they're in high school and say, you better do a good job. If you don't get good grades, you're not going to get a good job. And then what are you going to do? Live a watch the rest of your life? That's not going to happen. Right? And we pressure, pressure, pressure. Because what we think is happiness is contingent upon possessions. It's contingent upon good relationships. It's contingent upon good health. It's contingent upon a good, good, upon a good job where you can provide for your family in an excessive sort of way. And we, we, we get it messed up. And we don't, we don't realize that the, the things listed in verse 35 can have a God-intended purpose in our lives, a purpose that we are reluctant to embrace. But if we do, we will find that the things of earth, as one songwriter said, will grow strangely dim. They will lose their luster and appeal because they take you down a road that is not sustainable. So mom and dad, don't tell your kids that happiness in life is tied to what you have. That it's tied to having a degree from this school. And if you get a scholarship and get into that school, then your future is bright. Don't tell your kids that lie. Those things don't produce happiness. Those things are no adequate substitute for the love of God that is found in Christ. And sometimes it's interesting to stand up and say, you know what, we need to retake the ground of happiness. Happiness is not rooted in possessions. It's not rooted in financial security. It's rooted in knowing that God loves me. God who is unconquerable. God who has infinite power and capacity to love and protect, even in the face of death. True happiness is found in that. Because here's the bottom line. One day all of us are going to age. And one day the luster of the things that we have collected will fade. 
spent a lot of time this last week working in my garage. I am a, I'm a wood shop nut, okay? Love working with wood, okay? I love to build furniture and then brag about it to people, okay? Sometimes you hear myself doing that. It's convicting. It's like, I do that. I spent some time this past week putting a dust collection system in my garage. I, I said to someone yesterday, I said, I can be honest, I don't know if the joy in doing this is bound up in the project, like doing it. I remember as a kid building forts in the woods? Once the fort was done, you didn't spend any time in it. The joy was the project, right? We tear it down and build something else. Why? But the reason we're building the fort is we'll hang out there and we'll be happy. You get down the fort, you sit in there and argue with each other because <laughs> you don't have anything to do. That's what happens to people. They get old. They sit in retirement with all their stuff. And guess what? No assurance of the love of God and a pervasive sense of unhappiness. Because we think, we buy the lie that happiness is dependent upon things. And when God allows those things to be taken away from us, we find how shallow our lives have really become. Folks, there is nothing greater in your life than to know assuredly that God loves you and that his love for you is unconquerable that it is a love that is invincible, that it is not conditional. And you need, here's what you need to do. When God allows verse 35 to strike your life, and it will, if Christ does not come, death will strike your life. You will deal with face-to-face the final word in that verse. And if you know Christ, you can answer Paul's question. Can these things separate us from the love of God in Christ? Well, the answer is, it depends. It depends if you have trusted in the glorious coursework of the Savior that we celebrated in these elements this morning. It depends if you know Him personally, if you have experienced the sovereign calling of the Spirit in your heart and have responded in repentance and faith saying, God, save me. If you have been there, then you know what it is to be justified and to have in the future to know that I am already in the eye of God, glorified, and that His love that is set on me in that kind of a way is unconquerable. And that there is then nothing in this list that should cause a born-again child of God's to doubt his goodness. But we do. Okay, and that's the point I want to deal with right now. Why? And here's, here, here's the assertion I'm going to make. It deals with the second question in your notes. Why does God allow us to suffer? If his love is unconquerable, wouldn't it make sense that he would give us the best life? Well, let me ask you this, mom and dad. Is your love for your children expressed by expressed by pouring out stuff on them and spoiling them? Do you ever see a parent who spoils their child and thinks and think to yourself, they're wise? That's smart. That's loving. No, you don't. Because you know that in the struggles of life, it is when you will grow in dramatic ways that you could not experience apart from the struggle. That's the way it works in a fallen world. And so why does God allow us to suffer? I think answering this question is critical to understanding this passage of Scripture. Verse 36 says this. It says, as it is written. Now notice, okay? Can these things separate us from the love of God? List of seven things that all of us would love to avoid because we think they're bad things. And stuff and security, they're good things. Okay? These are beneficial. These are detrimental. These are are a debit and these are a credit. I want these things. I don't want these things. That's how we live our lives, trying to avoid those things. Here's what Paul says, and he reaches all the way back to Psalm 44 and verse 22, verse 38, notice what he says. As it is written, and I'll just, I'll, I'll read it. He says, for your sake, Father, 
we face death all day long. Meaning, in the present tense, we are in constant danger of losing our lives all day long. That is to say, this experience for the writer of the psalmist to the people of Israel in their setting was normative. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. That is how the world around us perceives us. Because what was happening to Israel? They lived in a pagan world. And the pagan countries around them were hammering them and pummeling them. And they didn't know that the purpose of their existence was not to have a good life. The purpose of their existence was to enjoy being for the glory of God in any and all circumstances. That's the thrust of this text. So in this context, it is that Paul picks up that verse and says to believers, everything that you're going through is ultimately about the glory of God. For your sake, we face death all day long. We are considered like sheep to be slaughtered. There is a higher purpose in our experience than most of us would ever realize. Why does God allow us to suffer? That then becomes the question. Because he let it happen to Israel in the Old Testament. And we know in Scripture, Jesus said, all those that are in Christ Jesus will experience times of suffering. Circumstances will cause us to doubt the goodness of God. Why does he allow us to suffer? That's the question. Because, and I'll make two assertions, because suffering and death can be the result of spreading the gospel, okay? Meaning some of your negative experiences may be coming because you are pursuing a path of obedience, living a life that is for the glory of God, being a truth-telling, God-loving person, and your life is different. And quite frankly, people don't like being around someone who has their moral act together. And as a result of your loving them, or as a result of your sharing your faith with them, most people aren't saying, you know, we really appreciate you telling us that we're sinners bound for hell apart from Christ. We're really, thank you. Right? Most people aren't responding that way. And when you live a moral life, particularly as a teenager, you live in a world where you will be hammered for not using the language that the world around you uses, for not watching the things that they want you to watch, listening to the things that they want you to listen to. You will be hammered. Here's what the psalmist is saying. For your sake, Lord, for your glory, all day long, we are willing to be counted as sheep for the slaughter. We'll take the hit if there's a purpose in it. In other words, I'll embrace the things in verse 35 if I know they have a God-given purpose. But if they are just God taunting me from heaven, I don't want anything to do with them. But if through them, God does for his children what every good parent does for their children, then our response to God should be, in your wisdom, Lord, allow what you will and let me endure it for the sake of your name. Because life is not about me. Life is about God. Okay, do you see how we get it wrong? We're thinking happiness, security, finances, relationship, good job, good education, blah, 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 blah. Everything that at the end of your life will mean to you. Sadly, absolutely nothing. And if you make that the purpose of life, you're, you're going to set yourself up for devastation. Because not if, but when trials come, your worldview is going to be shattered because that worldview does not work. Those things can't produce lasting satisfaction. Why is God allowing the things to come? Well, sometimes it's a result of obedience, but often it is this. Suffering and death is often the means by which the church makes Jesus known to the world around it. It is the God-chosen means. It is the God-ordained strategy often by which he makes made 
makes known the name of his son to the nations, to people around you who watch you live in a fallen world just like theirs, where you lose your job and they lose theirs, where your financial security is shaken and theirs is, where their marriage is struggling and yours is. And they're watching you. And you know what they're watching? They're watching to see if your relationship with God, where you claim there is unconquerable love, they're watching to see if it is substantial. They're watching to see if the love of Christ that you sing about on Sunday morning works on Monday. That's what they want to know. Does it work when your relative passes on to be with God? They are watching to see if when you lose your job, you really mean it when you say, my treasure is in heaven. They're watching. And they are desperate to see something better than what they have. And the reason God allows Christians, believers, to go through cyclones at times and hurricanes at times and tornadoes at times is because he wants to, through us, demonstrate his unconquerable love to the world. Jesus put it in this way. John 12. He said, I tell you the truth. Unless a kernel of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. Through the death, a positive outcome is achieved. That's the thrust of that statement from Christ. The man who loves his life will lose it. That is the person that clings to finances, education, marriage, all the temporary things and thinks of them as eternal, that clings to those things and says, this is life. Jesus says one day he's going to leave that all behind. No matter how much he has, he will leave it all behind. Here's what he says. The man who loves his life will lose it. The man who hates his life, that is to love it less in this world, will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me, Jesus says, must follow me, must be like me, must be willing to sacrifice like me. And where I am, my servant will be. My father will honor the one who serves me. Who is the one that serves him? The one that serves him is the one that follows him and is willing to become like him in his death. That is the crazy truth of biblical Christianity. That we can look at suffering and say, it is not an incidental interruption in my life. It is the God-ordained strategy when embraced by which we advance his cause. And that's why the psalmist says, for your sake, Lord, for your sake. We are counted like people look at us and think we're fools. They think our commitment to Christ is foolish. I have I, a couple of people know that I'm going to India that are not Christians. And they were like, I said, I've been there. I'm asking the same question. My answer is not material. My answer is not physical. My answer is, and it's a beautiful place to be. Getting off the plane is an assault on your senses, every one of them. But there is a purpose to go. And the purpose is the name that is above all names. The purpose is the name that gives hope to the hurting. That's the purpose. May God put on our hearts a burden to say, God, I want to begin to embrace the struggles that you allow to come into my life in the same way that Jesus embraced the struggles that came into his life, ultimately the cross. Verse 27, as Jesus looks at the cross in John 12, here's what he says, now my heart is troubled. Think about that. As Jesus in his flesh contemplates the brutal consequence of the cross born for our sin, he looks at his disciples. And Luke puts it in stronger terms. Luke says he was troubled 
deeply. He looks at his disciples and he says, now my soul is troubled. Why? Because he was just about to enter into verse 35, persecution and tribulation and the sword. Did he run? Listen to what he says. He says, now my heart is troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? Here's what Jesus says. He says, I can't imagine saying no. Why? For this very reason, I came to this hour. And what does he say next? You know what he says? Father, glorify your name. Folks, that's the path of happiness. The greatest and most substantial joy that you will find in your Christian experience is when you embrace whatever comes, confident of the of the, of the inevitable and, and uncomparable love of Christ for you. You embrace whatever he sends knowing that it is the means and the strategy by which Father in heaven is glorified as his ability and capacity to satisfy your life is enjoyed in the midst of tribulation in such a way that a watching world looks at you and says, I wish I had what you have. Because here's the bottom line. Every person you relate to one day is going to face death. Every person. And they know it. And they watch you suffer. And God wants to use your suffering as sheep counted for slaughter all day long for your sake, Father. And they watch you endure the normal ins and outs and ups and downs of life. And they are looking to see if Christianity has a substantial hope for the hurting heart that knows that even if they have the good life right now, it could be gone tomorrow. That's what's been happening in our country financially for the last two years. And people's world financially, their security, their hope of all the things that they want in the future has been devastated and shattered. Has yours? Has yours? Has mine? I've thought about it. I've thought about it. I don't have a pension plan. Thought a lot about it. Almost to a point that is embarrassing to admit. This text challenges me. What are you going to rest in? What are you going to hope in? You're going to hope in the things that are temporal and say, God, I can't be happy unless I have X amount when I retire. I remember sitting down with a financial planner years ago, putting the number out there and saying, that's funny. That's funny. And if you think you have to have that number to be happy, you are setting yourself up for disappointment because even if you get the number, it will not be enough. And when you get there and have it, you realize I don't have much time. share with you something that's a little on the personal side. I've been planning to say this, but I'll veil this as best I can. My dad sold his business to my brother three years ago. He's, my dad is winding down. He's getting older. You know why he sold the business? Because he can't do it anymore. You know what he's reckoning with? The reality that my life, I have a few years left. Don't know how many, but I got a few years left. You know what? I love talking to my dad about that. I love to see the sheer confidence and joy that he has in Christ. He wants to be around, just had four grandchildren more in the last 12 months. He wants to be around and enjoy that. They live right down the road. But it's not his life. It's like Paul said, our life is hidden with Christ in God. 
And that's why we can say, well, if the things of verse 35 come, I'm okay with that. Because the purpose of those things is that a watching world around me will see the glory of Christ in any and all things in my life. And the watching world will be attracted to know Jesus. And when they see my satisfaction in Christ, in my circumstances that are just like theirs, they're going to say, I wish I had what you have. Why do they come? They come as a means by which we can embrace them and then bring glory to God. The application is this. We are very good at avoiding the God-given means of growth. We get nervous about inviting people to a dinner concert. We're trying to avoid that kind of awkwardness, let alone the larger issues. Hey, here's the bottom line. If I'm not prepared to invite someone to a Valentine's dinner because I'm a little nervous about offending them, I'm not ready for verse 35. I'm not. And I need to get ready. I need to get ready. What are we in the face of all things? Verse 37. In the face of the things that are listed in verse 35, what is a Christian? What is someone who has the hope of Christ? Here's what Paul says, verse 37. And this is the answer to the question. He says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors. And the word is hooper nike. Okay? Hooper is where we get our English word hyper. And the nike is where we get Nike shoes from. Okay? It's true. The word nike means victory. Right, the swoosh, that's what that means is the victory, the fight to the victory. That's the word. You know what Paul says? We are hyper victors in Christ. You understand that? Paul's saying, bring it on. Why? Because the future's covered. There isn't anything that you can do to me that will steal the love of Christ from me. We are hyper, we're not just conquerors. We are more than conquerors. In the Greek, it's one word. Hyper nikao. That's the word. We are hyper-victors in Christ. Not because we are strengthened ourselves, because what does Paul later say? 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Not that we are adequate in ourselves to think anything from ourselves. Our sufficiency comes from God. So it's not about us and glorifying us, and, and we are standing firm and strong. No, we're weak. But we have the love of Christ poured out in our hearts. And out of that love, we cry, Abba, Daddy, in the midst of the circumstances that are meant to be the means and strategy by which his name is glorified and his children find delight when he is exalted. And a watching world says, wow, the Jesus you have is making a difference in your life. What are we? We're more than conquerors. Last question. Why was Paul so willing to suffer? Because here, you have two conclusions here. Paul knows something I don't know, or he's a masochist. Okay, he knows something I don't know, or he, he feels so bad and guilty about his life that he loves when God just beats down on him. It makes him feel good. It has kind of a redemptive purging effect in his life. There are only two conclusions you can come to. But you can't read this text and come to the first conclusion that he's a masochist. You come to a conclusion that he knows something, not intellectually. He knows something by experience that is altering the landscape of his future life. And I want you to notice the strength of the words that he uses in verse 38. Notice what he says. He says, for, okay, in light of what? In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us in eternity past, on the cross, and in the future. Through him, we are winning a most glorious victory as hyper victors in Christ. For, verse 38 tells you why Paul has this assurance and why he is willing to say, God, Whatever is necessary in my life, bring it into my life so that I can be used by you to glorify your name amongst the nations. That's the heart of Paul. That is the source, I believe, of an abundant, sustainable joy in our lives as Christians, not things. 
He says, I am convinced. The word is in the perfect tense. I am persuaded is what Paul is saying. I have become and I remain convinced that death nor life, angels or demons, present or future or any power, neither height nor depth or anything else in all creation will be able to separate us who the redeemed in verse 28 through 30. Nothing can separate them from the love of God that is most clearly expressed in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now folks, if that doesn't cause you to say, amen, I don't have anything better. If that doesn't encourage your heart that Paul could look at this and say, I am willing to suffer. Why? Because he was convinced of something. He was persuaded in a rational, settled, unalterable way in his heart. He was persuaded that because of the resurrection of Christ, death was not the end. And folks, that is the heart of the early church. Luke 24 and verse 31. The disciples on the road to Emmaus see the resurrected Christ. And when they, when they see him, their hearts that were sagging in despair under the pressure and load of the events of the days, their hearts were lifted in amazing and incredible joy. Why? Because they simply saw him. Acts 1, 3 through 4. After his suffering, he showed himself to them in many ways and gave many convincing proofs of what? Of the resurrection and of the truth that in his death and resurrection, Jesus had taken the greatest weapon out of the tyrant's hand. Folks, do you understand this? The thing people really fear in life is not financial instability. It's not ill health. It's not the car accident or the motorcycle accident. That's not what they really fear. What they fear is the ultimate consequence of the event. Death. Here's the way N.T. Wright deals with this, talking about the resurrection of Christ. He says the resurrection, both of Jesus and then in the future of his people, is the foundation of the Christian stance of allegiance to a different king and a different Lord. Death is the last weapon of the tyrant and the point of the resurrection despite much misunderstanding, is that death has indeed been defeated. Resurrection is not the description or the redescription of death. It is, its, it, is, it is its overthrow, and with that, the overthrow of those who power, whose power depends upon it. Understand what this is saying. In the ancient world, Christians were proclaiming the name of Christ. For your sake, Lord, we will be persecuted and counted like sheep to the slaughter all day long. Christians under Nero were burned at the stake. They were thrown to wild animals. They were sawn and sundered. Read the last part of Hebrews chapter 11. And they did it with joy. And they did it with confidence. They were unshaken. Why? Because they had a hope that death could not annihilate. They had a loving Father in heaven. They had a love from their Savior that caused them to embrace all circumstances, not as a distraction, not as a temporary interruption, but as the divine strategy for glorifying their Father. And for them, it was come what may. We will cling to the love of God. We will serve Him. We will lay, our, lay down our lives for this message of Christ. Because in His resurrection... Death is overthrown. And with that, the overthrow of those whose power depends on it. Do you understand why Paul was so in prison? Confident. They come and say, you know what, Paul? If, uh, if you don't stop talking about Jesus, then we're going to kill you. 
You know what Paul says? Philippians 1.21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What is Paul saying? My greatest fear, the weapon in the tyrant's hand with which the evil one threatens all the time, particularly in countries where it is not legal to proclaim Jesus. That's their threat. I'm going to take your life. Paul said, it's fine. Death will usher me into the presence of the one who loves me. Death will not be what I fear. Death will be the means that leads to the greatest possible joy in life. That's why we say when someone dies and moves on, is transferred. It's not the end. For those that hope in Christ, this is the glorious day. And death that everyone is trying to avoid and get away from is what Christians can embrace. And it is the ultimate of the list of the seven. The sword is to kill. Paul says that's okay. Because for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. The answer to the question that Paul starts with at the beginning, what can separate us from the love of God? Verse 38, I am convinced that none of these things listed will be able to separate us from the love of God that is found in Christ Jesus our Lord. And the verse rings in my mind, 1 Corinthians 15, I believe it's verse 31 or, or 51. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where is your claim on my life? Where is your capacity to cast a black, a wet blanket over my life and to snuff out the oxygen and joy of my life? Where is your ability? Death, where is your sting? You see what Paul's doing? Bring the worst, and I will confront it. That's what he's saying. Why? Because we confront it through Jesus, who rose gloriously from the dead. The result is then, Paul says, I do not count my life dear unto myself. You know what that is? That is absolute freedom. That is what you are really looking for. To say, I don't worry about dying. Doesn't mean go be stupid. Okay? Doesn't mean go act like me. Okay? But what what it does mean is this. Come what may. I am secure. And not my love for Christ and my commitment to Him, but in His love. Aren't you glad it's subjective? Christ's love for me, not my love for Christ. Because you know what? My love is fickle. It is frail. It's fragile. It's unreliable. And that's why some days, you know what we're feeling? We're wondering, does he love me? Why? Because I don't know if I love him. Because he's allowed circumstances to come into my life that have caused me to question his goodness. Because I don't understand that those circumstances were brought by God to be the means by which he would be glorified in my life, whether by life or by death. That's why at the end Paul can say, you know what? I do not anymore count my life dear. And then you are free to live your life. You know why? You won't always be saying, well, isn't there risk involved in doing that? If I go to such and such a place, isn't there? And if I share the gospel with this friend, can I lose a friend? Look, he's got your death covered. You have nothing to fear. Death does not separate us from God's love and purposes. It brings them to fulfillment because nothing can separate us from his love. Our confidence is in his love for us, not our love for him. Here's the question I want to ask you this morning as we go. What suffering, what means has God brought into your life that you've been avoiding that he wants you to embrace so that he can use you? What person in your life, what situation are you avoiding trying to leave that God wants you to work in for his glory? 
What problem are you facing this morning that the unconquerable power of the resurrection of Christ cannot resolve? Think about it right now. What in your life, what relationship, what circumstance, what financial struggle, what physical struggle are you facing that Christ's resurrection cannot ultimately answer? That's what Paul's saying. What can in all these things, what are we? We are hyper victors. We, we enjoy a, victor, a victory that is beyond our capacity. That's the idea. Because of what Christ has done. What purposes are you living for that have lasting value that will comfort your heart? Now please hear me. What purposes are you living for that have lasting value and that will comfort your heart in your later years and in the face of terminal illness which is likely for all? But see, I, I'm a realist in this sense. And you might think I'm weird when I say this. I say this to my dad. I say, Dad, have my, all of our in-laws were blessed with all of them. Okay? It is a remarkable blessing from God, but I am a realist. I tell my daughters all the time, if you see the next five years with all four of your grandparents alive, you are very fortunate. I don't say that to be a sadomasochist. I say that to be a realist. And I say to my kids, enjoy them while you have them because they are a great blessing from God. And when they go, they're on to a better life because each of them knows the Savior. And so we can embrace that and look at that. And when the phone rings and it's a 215 number, it's where all of my in-laws and my parents live. The first thought that runs through my mind, not as a depression, but it's just a reality. I, I wait for that phone call, not in a bad way. I just, the reality is one day God's going to take them home. Enjoy the time with them because they're not going to be around forever. And they're going to go on to something that is far greater. Far greater. Because they know Christ. That is Christian hope. And it should send a, just a, a glorious, brilliant light into our lives that no matter what you're facing, it's causing you to doubt the goodness of God. Understand, it is the means and the strategy that Father has ordained to glorify His name in and through your life. Embrace it. Don't fight it. Embrace it in the power of God. Don't count your life dear to yourself because he loves you so much. Father, we thank you for your word today.